One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. On the 31st of July, 2022, the England women's football team won Euro 22. They are champions of Europe. It is a massive result. It was a game attended by a record crowd. More people than ever watched any other European final, men or women. People on the night were keen to say this is a new dawn, the start of a golden age for women's football. But in fact, there's already been a golden age in women's football. In this podcast, which I have delved into the archive to draw out. I recorded years ago with Claire Balding, a national treasure, BBC broadcaster, specialising in sport. And she told me about the time when men banned women's football because it was too popular. During and after the First World War, women's football enjoyed enormous prominence within the UK, so much so that it was seen as a threat and it was banned. This is an extraordinary story. So as always, as we're watching the world around us, the events unfolding, things happening, it's always good to have a dash of history to remind you what's gone before and how we got here. Here's Claire Balding. Enjoy. Claire Balding, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, this is a fascinating story. Just briefly, at the outbreak of war in 1914, was there a male professional football soccer league here in the UK? Mm, very good question. Whether it was fully professional by then, I rather doubt. In fact, I know it wasn't because I think one of the concerns about the women was that they were taking quite generous expenses. So somebody like Lily Parr was actually closer to being a paid footballer than any of the men. And I think that might have been part of the problem for the FA. Oh, okay. So, well, this is an amazing story in that case. So in 1914, the outbreak of war, men are all playing football and people are paying. As soon as the factories are out on Saturday lunchtime, everyone goes down and watches the big teams that we still know and recognise today, Man United and Arsenal, that kind of stuff. Then what happens in 1914? Yeah, not, not necessarily the big teams we recognise today, but, but certainly big teams. I mean, Corinthian casuals would have been one of the bigger ones, which was is still actually an amateur side. And, and there, there were some that... They didn't want, I mean, as you're probably aware, there was a big break in rugby union um, when the northern, basically, the northern rugby union clubs wanted to go professional because working class men could not afford to take time off to play rugby and people were charging for tickets and the league was making money, but, but the players were not allowed to. So they did this single broken time payment and essentially it led to the rugby league forming its own 
association and splitting from rugby union. Football did not want that to happen. And they had a real prop. They were, they were beginning to have problems as well with some, quite a lot of men not being able to afford to give up time to play football. Um, but they wanted to keep control of it. And if it was going to go professional, they wanted to still manage that under the auspices of the football association. Um, women's football, they didn't know what to do with because they didn't know how to control it. It had been set up sort of on an ad hoc basis, largely out of factories. And quite a lot of the factories, whether they were munitions factories or whether it was round trees or Bourneville or whatever, were quite, um, they were very keen on sport as a way of keeping their men and women motivated and healthy and fit and working as a team. So obviously in a situation where there weren't many men working in factories because most of them had gone to, to fight in the war, the women who took over those jobs were similarly, you know, needed motivation and wanted to be kept fit and healthy. And actually, because they were doing quite strong physical jobs, they were naturally building up more muscle. They were stronger women anyway. And though the pictures, if you look at the pictures of the Dick Kerr ladies, I mean, they're young, you know, fresh-faced women, but they're fit and healthy. They look really well. Um, and Lily Parr was this fantastic player who came in at 14 and was about six foot tall. I mean, she, she, she sort of looked like Garbina Muguruza, you know, just won the women's title at Wimbledon. Um, and she was a very, very good player and became good because they were doing quite a lot of training. And it's just an amazing thing because she probably was was getting a, a decent extra, you know, for, for expenses. She was certainly supplementing her income quite effectively, whether she was working in a munitions factory or later working in, a, in a, an asylum um, local to, to, to that sort of St. Helens, Preston area. What I don't understand is, is when the men all, all went to war in 1914, did the Women's League, was it... Uh, was it deliberately boosted because it gave people on the home front something to watch football or were they the only ones left playing and just slowly it grew organically and became a huge, huge attraction? I think it grew organically and you're right, there was nothing, there was nothing else to watch in terms of competitive sport and I think in the beginning probably as a curiosity crowds went along. You don't keep going there as a curiosity, you might go once and you might, you know, you just don't, you wouldn't do it more than once. And you certainly, 53,000 of you wouldn't go to a match um, just as curiosity. And, and Everton being one of the older clubs, um, that, that was very much as is now. But, but their women's team was very good. And it was the match against Everton at Goodison Park um, that got that massive crowd. And loads more people locked out of the grounds because they couldn't get them in. And it's not long after that that the FA have the meeting and say this must stop. Um, so it had built up during the war, but, but it was continuing afterwards. And I think there were various things happening. One, the FA were frightened that this was the beginnings of a professional league and they didn't want that. And they certainly didn't want that spreading to the men. Secondly, it was women and therefore it, it was considered um, that this wasn't quite right and this isn't what football was meant to be. Thirdly, and I do think this is fairly important, some women had the vote by this stage, but not all women and not working class women. These were large gatherings of people, male and female, watching women being strong and competitive and ambitious. They are not looking at women in, you know, fulfilling traditional domestic roles. And I think it was thought of as revolutionary. 
and and you will know better than me, Dan, what was happening around Europe at that time, and and anything that sort of subverted traditional um, roles or was in any way uh, kind of seen to be a, 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 an uprising that they, they would be concerned about, and also. They didn't know how women would vote. And, and a little bit like the election we've just had, where I think there was a real fear of what would the young do if they did come out and vote, there was an assumption that all women would vote the same way, which clearly we don't and, and, and probably didn't straight off. But some parties were better at trying to attract women who had never voted before than others. And one of the stories I heard was that the Bolshevik party were very active around those football matches. And there was a worry that all women would suddenly join the Bolshevik party and this must not be allowed either. So there's a lot of different factors, none of which are recorded in the minutes of the FA meeting, which I've seen. The route they go down is this is a health risk and women should not be, it's unfeminine and it's a health risk. They shouldn't be allowed to be playing football, which is completely contradictory given that they've been working with TNT and munitions factories all through the First World War. So it's, you know, completely hypocritical. Why do you think even when the men came back from the war, and presumably those old clubs started up again, the men's game started up again, why did the women's game prove so enduringly popular, even when the, even when the big names, if you like, came back into the sport in 1918-1919? That's a really good question. I, I, I don't know, because having seen the footage I've seen, although technically they had improved hugely in the years they'd been playing, they, weren't, they wouldn't be up to a standard that you would, you would admire you know, just point back and say, wow, that's brilliant. I mean, Lily Parr was an outstanding player. And there's a great story about her being challenged by a male footballer, a goalkeeper who says, well, you won't get one past me. And so she fires a shot at him. He tries to save it. It goes in the net and he breaks his arm in the process. So there's a great, there's, there's a great deal of story. There's true stories about her, but I think there's a mythology that built up as well, that she was outstanding and she probably could have held her place in a men's side if mixed football had been played then or if girls were allowed to train with boys. I, I think, I don't, I don't know why they suddenly became almost more popular and it might have been because they were the only ones that were being written about and the Dick Kerr ladies had by now become the unofficial England side and they were playing France. So they were playing internationals um, by the early 20s where the, I don't think the men's side had got itself together again by then. Um, and would have been, obviously, the clubs would have been severely um, damaged by, by the loss of, of young men. Um, so I, I think probably a combination of the fact that they were being talked about, written about, and had been playing all that time, and that the men's game was rebuilding. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We've got national treasure Claire Balding on talking about women's football. More coming up. did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames 
that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's amazing, Claire, isn't it, that whether it's women's sport, whether it's women on the battlefield, whatever it might be, is that you keep thinking this is a natural state of affairs and men are all out playing professional sports and the women are, are only now achieving parity or something like parity. But actually, when you start looking back at history, you realise extraordinary that there are examples in our past of women running a, a more successful football league, for example, than men. It's just, it's just incredible. Yeah, and I think the, the sadness for me about the ban is that it lasted for so long. It lasted until 1971. It was a 50-year ban by the FA. Now, it's not that women's football wasn't allowed, because that would have required a, you know, an act of law. It was allowed. It just wasn't allowed on FA pitches. It wasn't allowed with FA officials or referees. There wasn't allowed to be a, a, an official league. So they had to start again or start from the beginning. Um, and there, there was an association of the, the women's FA was, was an association that was set up, but they took a long, it was, it has been a long, long battle where it shouldn't have been a fight at all to get acceptance from the football association. Now they've announced this year, they've announced a massive increase in funding to try and double participation in women's football. And they know they can because They've reached saturation point with the boys. There isn't a boy in this country, you know, in the UK that, that doesn't know that if he's good at football, there are ways in which he can join an academy, join a club. There are, you, you know, everybody knows they can. The girls don't know that they can. So they don't select football. They might select hockey, which, by the way, was never banned, despite the fact that it's a much more physically um, vicious or violent sport than football. That was never banned by any association. Um, but took quite a long time though to come into the Olympics for women to be allowed to play hockey. But anyway, that's a different story. The, the, the FA having not released that ban and not effectively supported women's football until relatively recently, I think it's had incredible long-term effects. And I'm out in Holland now for the women's European championships in which England are, are I would say second favorites to win the title. There is some coverage in the newspapers and actually there's quite a lot of coverage of this documentary, which helps. But you still don't open the papers on a regular basis and get fair coverage of women's sports. You just don't. And that is one of the after-kids. Football's our most popular sport. You look how much football's written about, even in the off-season, about potential transfers, about, you know, players' health and fitness, about, unfortunately for them, where players are holidaying as well. But the women's game just doesn't have the same sponsorship, the same support, the same interest, because it's not talked about as much. And that's the thing that I hope 
will change. It's definitely changing and has done in the last 10 years, but I think in the next 10 years, it needs to take a dramatic leap into the public consciousness. We need to be talking about players, clubs, and international football an awful lot more than we are. Well, I was I hosted a 13-year-old's birthday party the other day, my, my niece turned 13, and I was very struck. It wouldn't have happened in my generation. The girls, we were all camping out in the forest, and the girls were all brought a football with them and they were all passing to each other and doing tricks and it was just the most natural thing in the world and, I, and that just shows it made me feel old and it shows how times are changing I mean do you think you're, you're one of the best broadcasters in the world I think and, and certainly you know your, your expertise on sports is extraordinary do you feel that you've gone in your lifetime or your career you're going to go from a situation where women have been marginalised you've been doing a lot of work on men's sports perhaps in 20, 30 years' time, it's going to be completely different. It must be very exciting for you. Yeah, it is exciting because I can feel it. You, you, you know, you feel it already. I went to my first Olympics in 1996, um, you, you know, and, and the Olympic sports have definitely helped because in Britain we are becoming more and more successful. And when they looked at funding, they knew they were missing opportunities at gold medals. And they're very commercial about it, you know. Where can we win the medals? Oh, look, women's rowing, women's cycling. You know, women's hockey had, had actually always been popular, and that, I think, is a, a massive achievement to have won a gold medal in Rio up against countries who have been better funded. They, theirs is a really interesting one to study because that's about team ethic, and that's also about how to coach women. And there's a really interesting chapter about it in a book called The Talent Lab, which is about how we did better in Rio than, than we did in London in terms of winning medals. But I, I do think football... Is, is the most important of the lot because it is the one that is truly global and is such a huge business as well as a sport in Britain. And we, we have only entered football teams um, at a home game. So in London, there was a Great Britain men's and women's football team. It's a massively political hot potato, that one, because they don't, the leagues do not want... England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland don't want a British team that often because the argument is, well, why don't you have a British team in the World Cup then? And they don't want that. But the FA have promised that there will be a women's team at the next Olympics. So it's like women get a slightly different rule because the FA, I, I don't know why, but anyway, I, I would accept it with open arms and just say good because it needs to, we need to have representation at the Olympics as well. But the World Cup is getting bigger and bigger. And you see the audiences, particularly in America and Japan, growing for women's football. And, and I do think women's sport in general is getting far more respect, but it's got to also be, be available in schools. And my question to you with the kids that you had at the birthday party, do they play football at school? And if so, then massive, massive hooray. Yep, well, they did. They go to school in South East London. There's a big girls' football programme, that's for sure. Um, Claire, uh, you are, while I've got you on the podcast, everyone will be very happy to hear that you're, you're, you're moving into history programming finally. Someone of your calibre can't be spending the whole time talking about sports. So that's good news. Are you, a big, are you a big lover of history? I am a big lover of history. And I am, because my passion is sports, I'm always particularly interested at how sports can actually tell you um, as many stories as, as other forms of history. I've, I've always found history a little bit war-centric and, and I don't myself find the history of wars that entertaining or interesting or, or I don't think it tells us much except about the mistakes that, um, you know, alpha males have made over the years and saying, right, let's have a fight about it. I find sport such a... a, a it's just a different way of looking at... Um, 
periods in time, but also the developments of countries and also gender equality. So if you take the Middle East, a place where, where women are still fighting for the right to be treated as equal human beings, are still fighting for the right to, to get the vote, there are definite moves in certain Middle Eastern countries to allow women to compete in sport. And I think that still now, as it was in the 1920s, as it was going back even further, is a really important marker of the visibility of strong women. And I think sport allows women a, a, a sort of showcase. And yes, it's a harsh environment because you are judged on whether you win or you lose. But it's also a very important, um, just it's a very important avenue, I think, and, and opportunity for women to show what they're capable of and what with training and, and sensible preparation you can achieve. And, and that is, I, I think, just, you know, I find it, I find it interesting. I, I, wish, I wish more history was taught through sport. And any time I go to a major event, whether it's European championships like this one or Commonwealth Games or an Olympics, I use it as a way of studying different countries. What's their economy? What, how do they use sport to um, sell a message about themselves? So whether it's South Pacific Islanders with their rugby or whether it's, again, the Middle East with them hosting because uh, they don't really have enough of a, of a sporting culture within their own population to be successful at a sport, but they want to be seen as very important hosts. You look at Japan as well, how their efficiency is, is sort of told through the, their ability to host events really, really well. And sport is, is a major part of that. Um, I, I just think it's, you know, people enjoy it. They think it's a hobby and a pastime, but I think it, it's also, it's also political um, I think London's hosting of the, the 2012 Games was a massive soft political um, power goal, actually. I think, I think it, it did an awful lot of, um, it, it had with it a lot of benefits in showing that London was a safe, efficient place. Um, probably need another one soon. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, I think, I think for a lot of countries, it's about more than, than scoring goals or, or winning races. It's, it, it has a much bigger message, and I and I love it for that. And so the history of sport is, is something that yeah I, I would I would certainly be interested in doing more more programs about or or writing about. Great stuff. Well, tell us the name of your program. When's it on? Tuesday, the eighteenth of July, but obviously available after that um, on the Channel Four you know player. Uh, and it's called When Football Band Women. Fantastic. When Football Band Women. Go and watch it, everybody. Claire Balding, thank you so much. Come back on the podcast. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.